Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and on this week's episode I'm interviewing Paul Nicholson, the designer behind the logo design for the electronic band Aphex Twin and the Laughing Man logo from the Ghost in the Shell. But before we get into that, I want to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software that's designed for creative professionals like us that will allow you to quickly and easily create professional branded invoices in as little as 30 seconds. Plus, your clients can pay directly from those invoices too, making it quicker and easier for them to pay you. It's a beautifully designed piece of software and I recommend that you give it a go for yourself. And as a listener of the Logo Geek podcast, you can get a free 30-day trial just by heading to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek and how did you hear about us section. So at the end of last year, I received a message through Instagram from a guy called Scott Smith, who recommended that I speak to Paul Nicholson, the designer of the Aphex Twin logo. And he suggested that I I have a chat with him about how he um, bridges electronic music into graphic design. Being transparent, I wasn't previously familiar with Paul, but I I did some digging and I found a few really inspiring uh, interviews with Paul and I was definitely keen to have a chat with him and to learn more. And uh, obviously I want to share that with you guys. So a big shout out to Scott Smith for connecting us and he's a visual communication student at the City of Glasgow College. If anyone else is listening who ever has an idea for a guest or a topic, just ping me a message. I'm totally open to ideas and suggestions, and I will make sure to give you a shout out like I have done for Scott. In this interview, we learn how Paul approaches logo design projects for the music industry, um, how he uses sketching, experimentation for idea generation, and how he also goes about polishing and perfecting those designs using grids and how he gets clients and loads more. It's a really fascinating discussion around logo design, so I hope you will enjoy this. So let's get straight into this. Here is the interview with Paul Nicholson. Looking back through your work, you've designed a lot of logos within the music industry. How would you approach translating um, something like music into a simple graphic like a logo? Well, I don't, um, I don't have synesthesia, so there's no um, visualization of sound. So I think usually um, you listen to the music first to get a feel for it. Um, when I work with people, I ask for a mood board, and this isn't specifically design. It can be anything that they're into. So whether it be photographs from nature, plants, animals, it could be buildings they like, uh, objects, machinery, um, artwork, anything. And Once you you get a feel for it, you tend to find that um, certain shapes just feel right. It's it's quite, I guess, instinctive or intuitive. Just something feels right for a given client. There's there's obviously uh, 
rules in design that do apply. So um, if you use very light weight fonts, it has a different effect on people than if you're using bold fonts and lightwise um, with rounded edges or sharp edges. So there are things, there are tools in your toolbox that you can play with that visually uh, denote a certain emotive response. Um, as a designer, I don't tend to heavily apply a style. Um, uh, you know, if you take um, a company like Designs Republic, they have a very strong visual identity. And anyone going to Designs Republic are really seeking their stamp, that, that look that is uniquely um, from Ian Anderson. Whereas I, I, I try to um, approach every project um, with a blank slate and really let the idea be the starting point. So for me, that's, that's where it gets exciting is that you're, um, you're starting from quite an obtuse angle. You're not coming from the comfort of this is what I do, this is my style, take it or leave it. It's more one of trying to find a unique response to a set of circumstances. And when you look at a name as well, it, it's things like how the combination of letters sit next to each other, the flow and the, the balance that a letter P might have next to a letter H. And once you go through all of these um, attributes, it's bringing all of these together and trying to find something that is unique to that particular circumstance. Um, I mean, obviously, there'll be ways that I work that, that come through that people go, oh, yeah, that, that's definitely from him. But, um, yeah, by and large, I don't try and um, place too much emphasis on my own style. Yeah, well, I, I mean, personally, I think with anything like logo design, that's the way it should be. You know, you, sh you shouldn't really be um, forcing your own personal style onto something. You should be doing what you're doing, you know, like understanding kind of who they are and creating something that properly represents who they are. Um, I, I wouldn't mind diving into the part you mentioned about mood boarding. Hmm. So, um do you always get your clients to do that on their own or do you help them with that? Or do you, uh, it, do, it, you do one of your own or, or do you just leave it to your clients to pull together different images? I think really to understand what um, inspires an individual, it has to be completely from them. And I don't want to um, put any input at that point in time. In many cases, a logo is that thing that people use to represent themselves. So before you ever meet uh, a musician, and in many cases, before you even hear their music, the logo is their visual representation. So if I have an understanding of what it is that inspires them and can find the right forms to um, to represent them, then for them, it's something that they're very comfortable using. 
and, and and they're proud to you know it's going to be their badge it's going to be that thing that they put out there so it has it has to work on that level that when you create a brand you want that symbol that you're going to live with potentially for for the duration of that product or for that project so yeah if it if it feels right for the client then they're going to be happy using it and it's just going to grow with the product and it's going to work with with that thing that they're promoting. Yeah, I, I can see it's a good way to uh, kind of understand how they see their music in a visual way. Uh, with the mood board, do you offer any kind of guidance for um, creating that? You know, like, do they um, go on something like Pinterest or do you just get them to... Um, throw a load of images into a folder. Uh, how do you go about getting them to do that? I literally just say put together a mute mood board. Yeah, I do sure. ask that people don't um, find other logos or other bits of design because I think then the influence would be too close to what I'm doing. So it's good that they find things that are completely unrelated to um, typography or graphic design, because in that way, I'm looking for inspiration from areas outside of design and outside of graphics. So it works much better for me because the starting point um, sparks ideas that I wouldn't necessarily have if somebody just said to me, oh, you know, I really like um, the logo that you know, the Designers Republic produced for Wipeout. Can you do something like that? Because then you'd be forced into this um, cul-de-sac, really, where it's like, well, okay, you, you end up pretty much copying or emulating a particular look. So if somebody sends me a picture of um, a tree, it's good to to imagine how you can develop a logo type or a logo from something that isn't typographic. That's interesting. So, I mean, in in terms of your process, I I, I know that you do a lot of sketchbook work. Um, I I caught a you you did a a short interview that I I found online, and uh, I, there's like a, a three second clip in there where you're working in your sketchbook and you're doing you're generating loads of uh, different ideas within your sketchbook. Would you mind talking through? Like how, I guess it's the uh, next step in the process uh, for you, how you go about generating those ideas from a sketchbook perspective? Well, when I was growing up, this is pre-computers. So I was always drawing and even through university, it wasn't until my third year that the design department even got a computer and um, I graduated in 92. So Kingston University got six Apple Mac classics, I'm guessing at some point in 1991. But for a department with three years, you know, 90 students, there were six Mac classics. And I think in all my time in, in the third year that I had access to those machines and being a third year, we got priority. But I think in the whole of that final year, I got maybe six hours max on the machine. And um, 
they were slow. I was trying to do type on a curve and a good chunk of that six hours was just trying to do that one function. So predominantly my, my youth and my education right through to leaving was old school. It was pencil, pens, paper. So I, I think part of it is just the familiarity and what I'm comfortable with. I also think as well is that there's a different process at play when you go straight to the computer. Um, a lot of the time, the, the forms that I try to create are not necessarily geometric or perfectly balanced. So by sketching, I'm getting more of the feeling I'm after because the hand moves a lot more intuitively with a pencil than when you're moving nodes around with a mouse. And the very nature of working on a computer is it is um, a vectoring device. So you tend to find that things are on X and Y axes and you're aware of the verticals and the horizontals and the diagonals. So straight away, it, it, it limits you. You become more clinical when you design, whereas with a pencil, it can be a lot more organic and, you know, things happen. It could just be an accidental sweep of the hand or as you are raising back, you suddenly see something that you didn't see before. So there's that chance element. It's that more flowing freedom that you get with a pencil. What's good, obviously, when you take it into the computer and you start to look at it in a bit more detail and realize, oh, well, if I just twist this clockwise by a degree or two, it's actually on the 30. And then that balances off with, well, if I move this on the other side, it's a perfect mirror image. So you start to discover things in your pencil drawing um, that you weren't aware of that you were drawing. Um, there are certain, you know, geometric um, balances that come up and it works really well that way. And sometimes you will twist things to make them geometric. And then other times you just go, just leave it as it is. So it might not be a perfect diagonal, but, you know, it works. I think we work in quite a similar way. Um, I, I'm a bit younger than you. Uh, so, I mean, when I studied uh, uh, graphic design, we had computers. I, I, I remember uh, art at school, there was literally one computer in there, but uh, graphic design was slowly um, coming in and, and computers was um, a, a lot more popular. But in terms of my... Uh, my professional career as a graphic designer has always been on computers so even considering that I still prefer working on paper for the reason you said that you get these happy accidents and when you work in something like illustrator it's just too um, rigid and if you was to start something it, it almost looks too perfect from the outset that you you don't experiment as much as what you would on paper. And I always have, have, have happy accidents. 
because I scribble to be honest when I'm sketching so sometimes I draw something slightly wrong or I accidentally draw over something else and you just get these ideas that you probably wouldn't get any other way well um, I mean funny enough you mentioned scribbling I mean one process that I have used quite a few times is um I'll just draw your baseline and your x height as um a starting point but I will randomly draw lines in in a variety of angles then try and fill in um lettering um sticking to where those lines have fallen so letting it's a bit like throwing sticks on the ground and then trying to make letters out of it so um I can think of examples I mean going right back to a logo I did in 91 for a club called Knowledge. I mean, that was pretty much how that started. Um, I, I think um, I'd chosen to use, um, I'm guessing off the top of my head, about five or six different angles. So there'd be 30 degrees clockwise or 70 degrees anti-clockwise. So I just drew on a page, um, tons and tons of lines in all these various angles and then would link them up to create the K, then the N and then the O. Um, so there wasn't a design to start with. It was letting uh, a random array of lines be the starting point and then move from there. Mm. So, uh, can I just ask, like, in, with that concept, using all those different lines, where did that idea originally come from in, in your head like to 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 work in that way was it just you just felt like doing that and it was just a random um you know you were just playing with ideas or was there something about the the mood board or the 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 name of the club that kind of stem you in that direction i mean it, it's tricky to say what exactly was the thinking at that point in time i know that generally um I like, as I said earlier on, I like to start every project with a blank page. And for me, it's experimenting and just trying out ideas is always been what has motivated me. So I, I find, I, I find part of the reason that I can't create a, a given style or stick to a certain way of working is that I soon get, um, bored of it or I want it's almost like as soon as I've created something I want to move on it's like a process of create and destroy as soon as I've I've got something down it's like okay on to the next thing so you know you, you take things that have been successful um like the Aphex Twin logo I I couldn't simply just keep creating stuff in that style um, it wouldn't have been something I would have enjoyed, but it's, um, yeah, I, I think for me, the, the, the main drive and impetus to keep designing is finding new ways of working and just always pushing myself. So at the moment, I work with a couple of small record labels who give me quite a lot of creative control so 
with each of these labels, I found ways of working, which from the outset were just something I fancied doing. So some, somebody will approach me and in my mind, I'm going, oh, I'd really like to try photo bashing, creating spaceships out of various bits of photography and images that I find. And in having that opportunity, I, I, I've had so much fun working in that way. Mm, it sounds like a really exciting uh, way to be working. And it's cool that you've got that opportunity and they've kind of given you that freedom to really just experiment. And I mean, based on all of the work that I've seen that, that, that you have done, you know, going back to the Aphex Twin logo, that just seeing the, the process behind that, I could see that it was quite, I guess, experimental. Like it wasn't just, I don't know, you, you, you see a lot of logos out there and the, the solution is relatively obvious, I guess. I guess that's the best way to describe it. But what you're doing uh, of the work that I've seen, it, it, it does seem a lot more experimental and you're having fun with it and you're trying new things and you're trying to do I guess solutions that are quite different and they do I guess properly represent that uh, club or that uh, musician or that group in in the right way I think. Um, in my mind there's little point simply creating a logo and then oh right logo type okay should it be Futura or monotype or whatever and it's that thing where to me it's just insanely uh boring and and it is amazing how many logos we see um and then you realize oh well it's it's just futura bold italic or <laughs> it's just helvetica or something and um you know, to, to not even add a few elements to it or break a few bits off so that it is at least a, a derivation of the logo. But part of the, um, again, it's purely self-motivated. It's that thing. I, I love to work with type. I, would, I wouldn't enjoy simply fobbing someone off with... Um, just something typed using existing font. The, the, the very reason I'm doing this is because I want to design type. So if I'm not designing type, then I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of pointless. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I'm curious then, is, is that the reason why in your career you have focused on um, music as a, a genre more than the corporate scene just because uh you can be a lot more creative and you can be a lot more experimental because i i mean something like say like a, a apex twin i mean something like their uh music you can do something completely quite out there just because of the nature of um what you're trying to communicate do, like do you do you think that's the reason why you you prefer to focus on that um, I guess that that niche, or is there another reason why you're taking that direction? 
Um, you, you can look at it in in different ways. I got very much into music from a very early age. Um, so we're, we're talking 78, 79. I was probably a little too young to get punk because I'd have been six when punk came out. But um, I remember like the Scar revival of the late 70s and then New Wave. And it was that thing that I, I got very passionately involved with music. And from that, I started to develop a real love for record sleeves and the packaging and the way that um, bands use logos. So I remember as a 10-year-old with a, a biro drawing the Madness logo onto my rucksack and, um, you know, the Stiff logo, which was their record label. So from quite an early age, I was really into logos and I was drawing them everywhere. And so th there's that foundation. And even now, you know, music is a, a major part of what I'm into. So I'm, I'm forever scouring YouTube and Bandcamp and SoundCloud for new artists, new labels. It's something that I've never given up on. And I'm probably finding more artists and labels and musicians now than at any time in my, in my past. The, the volume of material being produced is, is astounding. And it's not as if it's, um, you know, rubbish either. I mean, there is some fantastic projects being done. And I think with um, the scope now of digital downloads, it does mean that there's a lot more experimentation. So for me, it's, it's great because um, the more progressive or cutting edge a musician or a label are trying to be, the more scope I have to push what I do. And there is an avenue through music where as a designer, I can put the stuff out as uncompromised as possible. I mean, you, you talk about corporates. I have worked on a variety of larger projects and it's good to be able to employ a certain discipline and knowledge that you have as a designer, having had many years experience to sit down with someone and understand what they want because you understand design. But ultimately, you spend a lot longer on something to produce something which is ultimately um, not very exciting. The, the rules that exist at a corporate level are a lot more, a lot more restricting. And you also have to pass the design through so many hands. And it, it's definitely like the old adage, too, too many cooks spoil the broth. <laughs> yeah. So what tends to happen is that you, you work with, say, uh, a junior member of the marketing team. You get something quite good looking down. And then it goes to the next level and they're like, oh, we can't do this. And 
oh, that's not quite readable. And then by the time they've had their input, and then it finally gets shown to the CEO or something, and then they'll say their bit. So once it's gone through that milling machine, there's really not much left of any creative merit. And ultimately, all you can say is that as a designer, you're proud of having done your job well and creating something that a corporation can use. But invariably, it's not something you show on your Instagram or put in your portfolio, because other than the fact you've worked for a particular company, there's no real kudos attached to it. You're not going to get um, many people following you simply because you've worked for a certain corporate. Um, and what I have realized as well is you used to think, oh, I've worked for this corporation or I've worked for this big fashion brand. The floodgates are going to open. I'm suddenly going to get loads of work from people. And it, it doesn't work like that. When I have had work um, come to me from large corporations or large companies, it's invariably because a person working there is an Aphex Twin fan or is a fan of um, Ghost in the Shell and had seen the logo I did for Laughing Man. So, the, like I say, just because you've worked with a big company doesn't mean all of a sudden there's loads of big companies knocking at your door. I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks, who has sponsored this season of the podcast. As creators, we like to spend our time creating clever ideas that give value to our clients. But a lot of us spend way too much time running our business, doing things like creating invoices, chasing payments and logging all of our expenses. And that's actually where FreshBooks can help. It's an accounting software designed specifically for creative professionals like you that's so easy to use, you'll save hours each week on all of the time-consuming admin that you're doing. And that means that you have more time to focus on designing logos and brand identities. Time-saving features in FreshBooks includes creating and sending branded invoices in about 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from your invoices, meaning that your clients can pay faster. And when tax time rolls around, you'll also be able to export tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks. No credit card required. Just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek and enter Logo Geek in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Now let's get back to the interview. Could we um, dive into that a, a little bit more in terms of like you finding clients because I I mean being totally transparent I did make the assumption that because you worked on the Aphex twin logo that that's why you've got a lot of um uh why you worked on a lot of other logos for similar uh, musicians and so on I, I thought that that was the reason why you know you would have done something like that and it had kind of attracted um, all of those opportunities if that's not the case how are you actively searching for potential clients um okay well Aphex twin has definitely helped but only 
really in the last couple of years because with the 2015 SoundCloud dump that Richard did and then more so the 25th anniversary of Selected Ambient Works Volume 2, um, a number of things happened that um, raised general awareness of the fact that the Aphex Twin logo had been designed by someone. And it's quite rare in music graphics that the designer gets any recognition. But with the 25th anniversary of Selected Ambient Works, and because the cover is just the logo, um, people started asking about the logo. So I, I think the order in which it happened was uh, Kevin Folks, who's DJ Food, had done an article on his blog. And I think from that, uh, a resident advisor got in contact with me. And it kind of spun out from there. So I had about uh, a month or so where uh, articles were either reposted or edited and ended up on various music-based sites and blogs, I think Hypebeast. And so these were, um, from a, a designer's point of view, just fantastic because it, um, it raised awareness. Um, but obviously, prior to that, um, I don't think having done the Aphex Twin logo was bringing in any work uh, in so much that Richard, as a musician, had a much lower profile. So that helped. The logo I did for Laughing Man, which was a character in the TV series for Ghost in the Shell, that has probably consistently brought in more work, and especially from Japan. So a lot of the work that I get from Japan tends to be tech companies, uh, app developers, toy manufacturers. So you can imagine that, you know, Ghost in the Shell uh, standalone complex is coming up to about 15, 15 years or so ago. So a lot of the people who would have been young fans of Ghost in the Shell are now at an age where they're involved in companies at a level where they are commissioning artwork. So having done work does help. I don't actively look for work. Um, I have Instagram <laughs> and it really does stem from that. I'm in the process of creating a website because I feel it would be good to present the body of work in a way that's more like a magazine where you've got a contents page and you can see things properly presented and I can write a bit more about it and go into stuff in a bit more detail. With Instagram, it's invariably viewed at no larger than the size of your mobile phone screen. So the website, I know websites aren't really firing at the moment, but it would be good to have this thing that's more like a book 
that I can direct people to, and especially people who are in the position of commissioning artists. I think it would be good to have something that people can look at and get a better handle on what you're doing because you can't expect, I know, the CEO of Adidas or something to, to scroll through all of your Instagram. It's not ideal in that respect. It's great to communicate on that quick fire manner. But um, uh, like I say, as, as you work with more people, those uh, nodes are out there. So some work will come in because I, I've worked with Marco Cadapana out of Germany. So he's really big in kind of hardcore techno. So I'll get work from having done his stuff. People will see that and go, oh, I want stuff like that. Um, I think as well is, is married to having done the Aphex Twin logo is uh, a resurgence of interest in the 90s. So whether I like it or not, I have been kind of lumped in that uh, prestigious group of individuals who were around. So I, I think musically and culturally, people are quite excited by what's happening in the 90s. And I'm not kind of um, naive enough to know that at some point people will move on the 90s will be, you know, won't be hip and won't be happening. So, like I say, um, I'll keep pushing what I do. If I get work for having done the Apex Twin logo, great. Uh, if I get work for having done the Laughing Man logo, great. But when I do get that work, it's not as if I'm emulating what I did 20-odd years ago. It's a starting point or a way to introduce what I do or get people into what I'm doing. But I'm producing enough new work to know that once this current interest or fad in the 90s dies out, it's not as if I'm going to be thrown on the rubbish heap. And again, it, it's what motivates you. you. You want to keep moving forward and you want to create new work because you certainly cannot rest on your laurels and rely on having that reputation because there will be a point in time where having done that work won't afford you any kudos. People will go, Apex who or Laughing Man, what's that about? People have moved on. I find it interesting um, from your perspective, based on what you said, it sounds like a lot of your work is coming from kind of word of mouth. So you've done something for someone and they've obviously spoke about the work and that's attractive other work um because i i mean here today i i think any kind of young designer i i feel it's kind of almost essential that they do have um a website but you seem to be um doing well without that and i i, I do think that is primarily because of the the word of, of mouth i mean you, you mentioned about your instagram how much of a dent is that making in terms of generating leads is, is that bringing in much or do you think it's it's more um I, I guess your reputation and and the work that you've done that's 
drawing people to, towards finding you on Instagram because um, I mean you, you you do have a website but it's just a, a landing page at the moment just a holding page <laughs> yeah. do, do you think people are kind of finding stuff that you've done previously looking you up finding you in a blog post or something and then it's going to your Instagram or do you think that by posting on Instagram people are finding out about you oh I mean I, I'm not someone who is very good in traditional networking circles. A lot of the time, if I do meet people who could potentially be um, a good node to add to your network, if I'm with them, I'll end up just talking about anything and just going with the flow rather than... I know some people would just straight away be on the hard sell. Oh, give me a business card. Let's meet up. Let's talk about projects. And I find that kind of very difficult to do not mm. because in itself it's difficult but i'm more likely just to want a, a banter just have a laugh have a chat rather than trying to be bye 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 sell 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 it's it, it's you know not really for me so yeah what? well I'm sorry to interrupt i know personally i i prefer that myself because the the way that i see it when you are networking people just want to hang out with people that they like and if they know that you can do certain work and you can help them in a certain area they will ask you about that when it comes around to it so i mean personally that buy 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 sell 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 um approach when it comes to networking i don't know about you but personally i i would not want to spend time with that person but that little bit of banter coming from you um you know you're making friends and i guess making friends that i i personally i prefer that approach and i think that's probably more effective um i i, I can't speak for a younger generation um but i i know w when i was in my teens and 20s you kind of went out of your way not to be liked that was the whole kind of thing of um going right back to something like punk or skateboarding you were you, you know you were anti-social you weren't part of the bigger society and you would gravitate to individuals or, or to groups or to activities or to bands because you didn't want to be part of the greater whole i think one of the aspects to things like instagram and facebook is the very premise is to be liked you are trying to be liked so it's turned a lot of the rules that were around when i was younger on its head um so a lot of the time what i like with instagram is i put the stuff out there and you can like it or you cannot like it and i it, it there's a part of me that doesn't really care because in a way, there's a part of me where if you don't get it, well, fuck you. <laughs> it's, you're either too stupid or too blind. And it's not like I'm being attitudinal or giving people a hard time, but it's just, well, it is what I do. And I'm not going to try and um, bend to um, 
consensus or try and follow trend. So as much as I'm aware of certain shifts in design, uh, whether it be Vaporwave or David Rudnick or whoever's hot right now, it's like I, I, I won't even touch it. And when I see that there are trends, I'm invariably motivated to go in the opposite direction. So um, it's, it's like with my bike. If everybody's riding um, with skinny tires with narrow handlebars, what do I do? I get wide handlebars and fat <laughs> tires. So I, I think, again, I'm more motivated to not follow and not be light. But uh, at this point in time, I, it's not like I have an agent. I'm not affiliated to any um, studio. So as I say, I have to play the game as much as uh, I can. But ultimately, I just post stuff on Instagram. Sometimes I'll, I'll get a really favorable reaction. Sometimes I don't. But overall, it, it works and people contact me and it's certainly cheaper than losing 10% on every project to an agent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't mind steering the conversation back to um, the logos that you worked on because I, I know earlier in the conversation we spoke about how a lot of what you do is quite um i guess experimental but something that i have noticed scrolling through your instagram your work is very precise very well thought out and um you you posted a number of these um i guess kind of like studies of your logos like showing the dimensions and sizes angles spaces percentages all this sort of stuff um and uh, I mean, it, it just shows a lot of detail and thought put into your work. So even though there is that experimental side, there is also this real polish and, and finesse to everything that you do. I'm, I'm curious to dig into this a little bit because um, you are presenting percentages, spaces, angles and stuff like that. Is, is there some kind of approach to that? Is, is there a reason why you use certain percentages or i mean what's what's the thinking behind that that final polish and, and finesse on everything that you do well um it, it's um very early on in the conversation i was saying how you start with pencil and paper and then once you take it into the, into the computer you start to see that oh okay that border is 8% width of the overall height. So sometimes as I'm, I'm laying out the vector graphic, I'll, I'll invariably photograph uh, the pencil drawing and use it as a trace in Illustrator. So I'll have that on one layer, you know, knocked down to 10% gray, and I'll be drawing over the top of it. So... I tend to take the vertical height to 100 millimeters because then it's really easy to work out the percentages. So if the if it's a circle and it's 100 millimeters diameter and then the inner circle is 80 millimeters, you know that you've got a 10% border width 
And um, I wasn't as uh, particular about angles and geometry um, until more recently, but in presenting work on Instagram and kind of getting into that whole thing of showing the geometry. And, um, you know, I worked on a project a few years ago, which was all about sacred geometry. And you start to see these amazing symbols and shapes that have been within humanity for thousands of years, um, constantly refined and worked upon. So I think what started out as just a, a way of showing off uh, how something is made, to a certain degree now is part of the process because as I'm creating them, I'm looking for these um, accuracies. Um, if they're there, great. If um, something just doesn't look right, dropping it down a percentage or adding a millimeter here or there, then you just go with what's visually correct. But um, I, I think it, it, it's good to show that you've done the grafting that you've worked at it, that it is considered and thought out and well worked out. If the starting point is experimental, then it, it doesn't mean that it can't be also geometrically perfect, have perfect balance and perfect weight. And, you know, having, you know, done this a long time, there's an understanding of design that is kind of ingrained into you so you just know when something looks right or has the correct balance but i i, I think outside of design it's just something that i'm really into I'll, I'll happily watch um videos about people restoring a world war ii fighter and just seeing how the, the framework is put together the engine is held onto the fuselage and then the skin is applied so i i love those things like um you know the dorling kindersley cutaway books or when i was a kid i I'd, I'd get aviation magazines and it would show you the cutaway diagrams so it, it, it's all there that this kind of uh, interest and obsession with how things are constructed and built and i've seen uh, similar construction diagrams for the Nike logo or for the Apple logo. And th there's a, there's a beauty to it that, um, sometimes transcends the actual logo. So when you see the Apple logo, it's like, Oh, that's nice. But when you see how it's being made, that in itself is, um, a work of art. It's just beautiful seeing all of those construction lines and, realizing that everything has a reason that it has a purpose and it, and and again it it sounds uh um like it goes against this idea this notion of experimentation being free form and um lacking constraints breaking all the rules but in design and in art balance and, and form Follow the rules of nature. You know, um, a tree doesn't grow 
the same as the tree next to it, but they all exist following certain rules of nature. So it's a bit like that with design. You can start with a very uh, freeform idea, but as you start to look at it more, you realize that that thing that you did just instinctively is a, a natural thing that, that flows through you that um, you're not kind of control of, but it's there. You can't ignore it. The very fact that you're scraping a piece of graphite over paper, there are rules of nature that apply there. The fact you can see it. So I'm kind of getting <laughs> unnecessarily profound, but yeah, looks good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I find it fascinating your approach. Um, I, I don't know how much time you spend online in any of the communities, but um, I've, I've seen a lot of work um, from uh, companies like Pentagram. You know, like Michael Beirut and and the the team at Pentagram, and you know, even going back to. Um, Paul Rand days, they used the golden ratio. And there's there's so much hate online towards the golden ratio. People are like, oh, it's nonsense. You don't need this. And and I think that's come from, I guess, inexperienced designers applying, you know, rules and and grids and stuff like this based on you know those diagrams that you mentioned of like the the apple logo and the nike tick and stuff like that and i think that's where it's generate where it's where it's come from just because people are using it wrong um and what i like about what you're doing and what i like about people that use the golden ratio um uh, with the golden ratio in particular, I don't think it's necessarily because it's the golden ratio. I don't think that's what make, makes it look look good. I think it's just the sheer act of doing what you're doing and recognizing that there are um, alignments mathematically or certain percentage angles or certain alignments or a certain elements of consistency. I think it's just the sheer act of, um, you know, doing this kind of like, I guess full freedom experimentation and then having this final element of I guess proper thought you know detailed thought as to you know maybe that could align there maybe that percentage could be a percentage of that um, maybe that could work that way and I think that's what um, kind of what makes certain people's work stand out you know yours and um, a lot of the graphic designers that I really admire uh, like George Bacoa, uh, he always does fantastic work. Um, I've always been a fan of Poor and all of the stuff that Pentagram are doing. It is just that finesse. And if they use the golden ratio, it's just an, a method for refining and perfecting that final thing. And I, I just think uh, when it comes to, to logo design, I do think it makes that, that difference. Well, you think about, most creative ventures. You can watch a film. Uh, I, I mean, I recently read a book about the making of Taxi Driver. And on one level, you can watch a film and just go, oh, wow, that was really exciting. I, I really loved that film. But 
there are people who will watch films who maybe understand the medium or understand some of the backstory and you will see a different film because you start to understand the reasons for certain choices, the way scenes were set up, um, the words that are written and then acted. So with a logo, there will be that instant reaction. You know, a lot of people uh, taking the Aphex Twin logo who aren't design literate, but they'll write and go, I really love it. And, and they'll say, oh, it doesn't look like anything else, blah, blah, blah. So you can obviously succeed if you can communicate to anyone. When it's something, though, that is there, there is that deeper level, there is that higher level of thought. It, it, it's good to be able to show that, to, to um, inform people that it wasn't just purely by chance but, but i mean it, it that, that's uh, i mean you, you can't be too up your own ass about stuff because really you still have to communicate and um i i you know when i have a, a project where i've got more scope to really um loosen up and create something that may be difficult to read that may be um unbalanced or whatever um those opportunities are great but then having had the training and sometimes when you've got the client then you, sometimes you just have to rein it in and just create something that that's elegant or, or beautiful or well balanced because in those circumstances doing something that's you know fucked up isn't appropriate mm, absolutely well I, I think we covered a, a lot of the uh questions that i had um but yesterday i i i posted out to the logo geek community that um i was going to be interviewing and and i asked if anyone had any questions and uh last night when sending over these questions to you i i only had one but i've actually had a couple more since All right. um so I, I don't know if you got um uh, a little bit more time but i think we could to go through them you need to do some quick fire questions and responses so uh the first one i i've already got written down but the rest i'm just gonna have to open up my phone so i'll ask this one first um so this is from liam jackson he asked did um did 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 you have a feeling that when you created the Aphex twin logo that it would become so iconic and did you think that people would recreate that logo in a matter of objects and you know even get it tattooed on themselves um well I, I think when you you do any logo um once you've handed it over it's effectively out of your control um as as good as a piece of design is in the case of Aphex twin the fact that he's continued to be a leading producer of cutting edge music and one whose reputation has continued to grow. Um, having, having created a logo for someone who, who has carried on working has helped. Uh, I'm not naive enough 
to believe that it's just down to the quality of the design. So the fact that after, I think it's coming up to 29 years, uh, Richard is still using the logo is a good thing because obviously it works for him then and it works for him now. Um, that said, I mean, there's a lot of um, musicians on a similar level to Richard and even more successful financially who don't have a, a logo or don't have a recognizable element graphically to what they do. So um, it, it, it just means that if you are into Aphex Twin or if you are into techno and electronic music generally, you've got this symbol that you can wear and you know that you will communicate to people that you belong to this tribe. Now, there are, I guess, iconic designs within, within every genre of music. So you might be into late 60s rock and roll, but because the Rolling Stones have got the logo with the, the lips and the tongue, it's likely that if you want to wear something that represents your love of that music, you'll go for a Rolling Stone shirt. Um, it's a bit like um, the Joy Division with the um, the sound waves, the white lines on the black shirt. I mean, that image is probably more recognized than the music of Joy Division. So there are circumstances where the design actually transcends the music I mean, how many people who wear a Joy Division shirt or a Ramon shirt or a CBGB shirt um, know anything about the music? It's just these graphic elements have become iconic. And I, I get the impression, you know, when, when I was at the uh, Printworks gig, I think for a lot of people who probably have a, a relative relatively small appreciation of electronic music, but they've discovered Aphex Twin and um, kind of proud to wear the, the green T-shirt or whatever. I think it's that thing where um, he has that visual identity that a lot of musicians don't. So, you know, there's no, there isn't really much competition. I can't really think of anyone in that, arena who have a, a, a brand identity for want of a better term i mean i'm a fan of board to canada but they don't have a logo so i'm not going to go out and buy a t-shirt um i'm going to see amon tobin uh, in a few months time and again you look at all of his record sleeves there's no one logo that you would say, ah, oh, I'm on Tobin. There's a, there's a collection of disparate images. So like with anything, um, through repetition and familiarity, something becomes iconic. And in the case of Aphex Twin, because he's stuck with that one logo, 
it has, you know, grown. But it, it, it as a designer, like I say, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, having something that's become iconic has helped immeasurably. Because if nothing else, when I first meet people, I can say, oh, yeah, I did this logo. Um, if I am in the company of Japanese people, it's an instant in with people. Um, Ghost in the Shell standalone complex was massive in Japan. Uh, production IG are kind of on par with like Marvel or DC in Japan. They're a highly respected animation studio. So most Japanese people you meet, I can go, oh, I did the Laughing Man logo. What I atoko in Japanese. And like I say, if you can get an in like that where you can say one sentence and immediately people have a handle, it, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely very useful. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Hopefully Liam will appreciate that. Um, I'm going to, I've got a couple more questions, okay. but I'm gonna, just going to ask you one last one um, just because we've, we've gone well over an hour now. Um, so Dennis Lloyd, he's asked uh, a whole list of questions, but I'm just going to ask the top one. Who is your inspiration? Well, it's a bit like how I described um, how people should create a mood board. The inspirations are um, way too many to to be able to pinpoint. Um, one that I would say, um, as a 15-year-old, I got into a band from Leeds called The Age of Chance. And the Age of Chance were the Designers Republic first commission. So along with a, a band that excited me musically, um, those early sleeves that the Designers Republic did for Age of Chance really cemented in my mind what I was going to do. So through A-levels, through my foundation course, through university, I, I knew exactly where I was going. There was only going to be one job that I was going to work in, which was uh, music-related graphics. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I would say they inspired me to do the work I do, um, but out of respect, um, I've always tried to work as much as possible without being actually influenced by the designers republic but they've always been um a, a design house that motivate me to push myself um because so often uh back in the day they they would put some work out there and i'd be like shit that's so good i've got i've got to try and work to that um that standard so, yeah, I mean, fair play to um, Designs Republic. In my mind, they, they set a very high benchmark, which um, I've always aspired um, and, you know, push myself to, to work to that level of um, uh, creativity. Um, more recently, I mean, this is, Designers Republic for me was more in the 90s, so probably... You, you know, 
those record sleeves for like the Orb and uh, Sun Electric, uh, Pop Will Eat Itself. I mean, they were all just amazing pieces of graphics. Uh, recently, um, no, no one in particular. And I, I think I'm just more broadly into stuff. So it, it could be anything from photography to architecture to, um, hazard warning signs, anything really that is, uh, visually, uh, interesting is an influence. Mm. That's a brilliant answer. Um, um, I've absolutely loved this conversation paul it's been uh-huh. amazing we we got through a lot in in the time and it's been inspiring for me and i'm sure uh listeners will have enjoyed it as well so in the show notes i'll make sure to link to uh all of your your uh your website or uh social media you know your instagram and um uh those interviews that i mentioned as well so that people can go and check those out if they're not already familiar with your work but paul thank you so much for coming on it's been um a real pleasure to to chat with you okay yeah you too enjoyed it if you enjoyed this discussion as much as i did let myself and paul know by giving us a shout out on social media take a picture or wherever you're listening i'd love to see where and how you listen so post them up on social media for myself and paul to see to check out Paul's work, find him on Instagram at number three underscore. Alternatively, head to the show notes for this episode where I'll link to all of Paul's social profiles, his website, the interviews I mentioned, as well as a full transcription of this interview too. To find the show notes for this episode, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash 65. If you want to discuss this episode with myself, Paul, and 8,000 logo designers from around the world, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's totally free to be part of it. All you need to do is head to logogeek.uk forward slash community, making sure to answer the questions. Paul's recently joined the group too, so he'll be able to jump into any discussions around the episode. So again, if you're not already part of the group, to find out, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash community. Well, that is it for this week, but I will see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.